Mikey. Hey guys, how's it going? Ooh, there's actually some people out there this morning, that's good. Okay, um, if I sound like I'm some sort of Lemsip advert this morning, uh, it's because I'm dying of the man cold. Um, and I know instantly I've just divided the crowd where all the men are going, oh, bless him, is he going to be able to do this? And uh, all the ladies are going, slap it up, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I know my place. Uh, so if I, if, if it, well, it means, it means a couple of things. Number, number one, that I'll probably preach for slightly less time than I normally do, so that's a win-win. Uh, and it also means that you might just have to deal with me croaking and drinking water a wee bit, but we'll be all right. I'll manfully, uh, you know, push on through. Um, So we are starting our new series this morning called Beloved, and uh, this is going to be a series over the next four weeks where we're going to really dig into the life of David. And uh, David's one of my absolutely all-time favorite biblical characters. Uh, There's so much to the life of David. First and foremost, David is a worshiper. And I don't know... Probably my early experiences of that sort of relationship with Jesus at a formative stage were, were all around worship and being in the presence of Jesus. So there's always been something about the life of David and this incredible, interesting character who, who wrote these amazing psalms and these amazing worship songs that we still draw from today. I mean, there's, there's hardly a week goes by where we do a worship set that hasn't had some sort of influence from one of David's psalms. Like he, there's still incredible power and life. He leaves an incredible legacy with that. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things I most love about David is that he was a fundamentally flawed human being. He was a deeply human character who made lots of mistakes. Mistakes that, dare I say, if, if any of us made those mistakes today, we'd probably be in jail. Okay? David is not the perfect human being. But David had two things going for him. Number one, and these are things that are going to come up again and again as we sort of explore this over the next four weeks. You're going to see that David had a deep understanding of the presence of God. Deep understanding of the presence of God. And also, David had a deep understanding that when you mess up, you come before God, you repent, and you change your ways. And you're going to see that come across, and that's kind of where we're going to across the next four weeks. I've given Mike the really tough one to do on this. Uh, so you can look forward to that on the last one. Mike's going to be talking all about repentance and things towards the end. Um, I get to focus on uh, you know, the presence of God stuff here this morning. So there you go. But there'll be a wee bit of repentance in there too. So uh, just a little bit of update on my life. We're at that tremendous stage at home uh, where Jonah, uh, my little two-year-old, almost three, he'll be three next month, He's at that stage where he just loves stories. And I mean this, if there's anybody who has, you know, is babysitting him over the next while, um, he will try and persuade that you do all of the, like, all of the stories on his shelves. Like, and he has hundreds of books. If you would sit and read them all, he would sit and do every single one of them. We have managed to get him down to five stories in a night. Okay? And some of you are going, five stories, that's ridiculous. Three stories is far too many. It should just be one or two. He just loves it. Okay? And we've, like, there's been, a, Jill, there's been a lot of work in that, getting it down to five stories, you know. 13 at one stage, okay, that's not a joke. So, so he loves stories, but I made a mistake about two months ago. He had this wee book, and it was a book like something called God Loves You, and as you were reading through it, I was like, oh, this is structured like a song, this is like verse one, and there's a chorus, and then there's verse two, and a chorus. So I made the mistake where I was like, I'll make up a tune and let him sing it, which was great, he loved it. 
The problem is every book you give him from now on, he goes, here, daddy, sing it. <laughs> and what's worse, until he's ready to kill me, is he goes, mommy, sing it. <laughs> mommy does not love singing the books. Um, <clears throat> but one of the books he asks me to sing is this one. And I've brought his wee book with me. And there's actually, there's actually a copy of this up in the kids' room. I haven't stolen it from the kids' room. This is his copy from, he gave it to him. I, it, usually somebody wrote on this that they've given it to him. Maybe this isn't his copy. Um, but it's David and the Very Big Giant, okay? Now, why am I showing you this book? Why am I telling you this? The reason I'm telling you this is because one of the, the story that we're really going to gravitate towards today is this story. And the problem is most of you, the story of David and Goliath, not David and the Very Big Giant, okay? The problem is most of us first encountered this story when? When you were Jonah's age? Or when you were in Sunday school? Who remembers the uh, fuzzy felt... Um, Oh, well, flannel graph. Who remembers flannel graphs? Hands up. Come on. Okay, all those people who remember flannel graphs, there's a special TT session for you all at the end <laughs> of the service. Um, yeah, I need. So the pictures I have in my head of this story are the pictures that I got in Sunday school on the flannel graph. Okay, now if you're not old enough to remember flannel graphs, you really haven't heard the proper biblical story. I should probably get a flannel graph out and tell this properly this morning. The point I'm trying to make is this. We think this is a kid's story because we heard it when we were young. And can I tell you today, this story has incredible power and this story should have incredible impact in our lives because it is the living, breathing word of God that is actually a Rima word for us right now and it is for this time and this season in church. So I want you to put aside your preconceived notions of this being a kid's story. We are not playing in the kid's pool this morning. Maybe we should play on the kids pool this morning, but we're going to go to the deep pools of God's word this morning and actually encounter what God has to say with us. Can we do that? Okay. So I'm going to start way back in David's life. And in fact, I'm actually going to start before even David enters the story here. And essentially, Israel comes to, to this point in its history where Israel doesn't have a king. Israel has been led by the judges, okay? They've been led by anointed people who have uh, sort of led the people of God through all sorts of difficulties. And they come to a stage where the people of Israel are looking out and they're going, every other country has a different type of government to us. They've got a king. We want to be like every other country. And the people of God literally plead, can we please have a king? And God goes, listen, this isn't, this isn't the way I want to do this, but okay, this is what you want. That's oh, all right, have a king. And Saul gets appointed as the king of Israel. Saul does okay until he doesn't. And Saul ultimately stops following the ways of God and God goes, whoosh, takes the anointing off Saul and goes, no. I'm not, I'm not staying with that. That's not right. And you get this whole situation where Samuel the prophet comes and sort of takes a bit of his, his cloak off him and uh, off he goes and then God starts to speak to Samuel. And that's where we come into the story here today where essentially God starts to speak to Samuel about you've got to go and anoint the next king. Now Saul's not dead, so this is a problem. And Samuel goes, here, God, I don't want to do that because if Saul hears that I'm doing that, he's going to kill me. Now, you only have to look, like, you don't have to go to the start of the New Testament and see the reaction that kings often have when another potential king is there. I mean, Herod killed all the babies in the land because there was potentially one that could take, him, take his throne away. Saul's not going to react well if he hears Samuel's off anointing other kings. But God speaks to him really clearly, and Samuel 
does exactly what God says. He goes, right, okay. God says, go, go find Jesse the Bethlehemite. And yes, it is that Bethlehem, okay? So it is the Bethlehem from the Christmas story. Off you go, find Jesse the Bethlehemite, and you're going to anoint one of his sons as king. And that's where we pick up this bit of the story. So we're going to start here reading in first, excuse me, first Samuel uh, chapter 16. I really could read an awful lot of 1 Samuel 16 and 17 today. I'm not going to read it all to us, but if you want some homework, because ultimately I am still a teacher, uh, if you want homework, uh, go read 1 Samuel 16 and 17, get a bit of the context of the story. So we start here, this is verse 5 at chapter 16, it says this, and he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, consecrate yourselves and come to me at Come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I'm going to pause there for a second. Now let's picture the scene. Jesse is obviously very excited here. He's got all his sons out and one of them's going to be anointed as the next king. So he brings out the big son, not the wee son. He brings out the big son. He puts the big son before him and the big son looks the part. He's muscular, manly, whatever it is. His outward appearance obviously ticks all the boxes. And Samuel's like, happy days. We're not going any further. This is, and God's like, no, it's not him. And this actually continues kind of for, for seven sons, goes through seven sons. And we'll pick this up again in verse 10. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord's not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now, what do we see is happening here? Seven sons presented to Samuel, and at the end of that, none of them are the person that God has chosen. The person that God's chosen is so insignificant in his family that Jesse didn't even think, you know, I should call him. I actually should get David to come here just in case it's him. He, did, he was like, there's no way it'll be David. David's off looking after the sheep. He's off there playing his harp. It's embarrassing. I wish he would stop that. What's he doing out there playing a harp to the sheep? Just send him off to the fields and ignore him. He is the least in his family. Now, there's a couple of things I take from this. Number one, is quite often the Lord speaks to me about things and I go, okay, I'll go do that. And you arrive and the situation is not what you expected. Has anybody ever had that experience? Okay, God says, I want you to go and do this. I want you to say this. And you have a picture in your head. Okay, it's gonna look like this and I'm gonna find this. And you go there and it's not as you expected. And quite often my response to that is to go, oh, that must have been that piece of cheese I ate last night. Obviously wasn't listening to the Lord. I'm gonna take myself away and just leave that. Samuel doesn't do that. Samuel asks the most important question. Is there somebody who's supposed to be here that's not here? See, quite often, we are actually perceiving what the Lord is speaking to us, but maybe the other people involved aren't. And we have to be prepared just to wait and to ask the question, 
Actually, is there somebody or something that's supposed to be here that isn't? Actually, then let God, you know, sometimes we actually have to push on through a little bit and find that road. The second thing I see here, and this is something that absolutely challenges me as a father. Jesse didn't know who his sons were. Jesse didn't know the calling and the life of his kids. Man, that challenges me so hard. Because I think I know the calling in my son's life, but am I really seeing him through God's eyes? Or am I looking at him and putting my desires and my things and my hopes on him? You see, what I would much rather do would be to put myself in a place where I go, okay, God, well, what are you saying about my family? What are you saying about my son? What are you saying about my spiritual sons that I need to raise up and do? How can I help facilitate that? As a dad, I want to know what God thinks of my kids. And I think that's a real, uh, moms are better at this. Moms tend to know their kids. Dads aren't always great at this. But I want to be a dad who knows my kids. I want to, I want to know what they're called to and I want to help equip my son to do that. Anyway, so we'll take a look here. This is uh, Samuel 16, uh, beginning at verse 12. Uh, it says this. And he sent and brought him in. This is David coming in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes. Everybody say beautiful eyes. And was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers. And here comes one of the most key phrases in this story. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. See, something happens in this moment. God has removed that kingly anointing off Saul. And in this moment, it comes upon the life of David. So when David steps in, this, this is something that I didn't get until I started studying this this week. When we see Saul and the next part of the story where Saul has gone off to battle against, uh, against the Philistines and ultimately against Goliath, Saul is going into that with the anointing of God lifted off his life for leadership. The anointing has come upon David. That's why there are two very contrasting reactions here. So the anointing comes on David. It's, now, I, I am a, I'm of the belief that David was well attuned to God when he was out in the fields. David was out with his harp in the fields, singing, worshiping. All he had to rely on was God to protect him, to save him. It was just him and his little sling or whatever and his little knife out in the fields. David could only rely on God. He didn't have anything else that he could put his trust in. It's in those places, it's in that wilderness, where ultimately God was bringing him through a season of preparation. See, all the things that David goes on to do, he didn't get prepared for in the throne room. He got prepared for it in the field. See, David's dismissed, forgotten, ignored even by his family, but ultimately... He was beloved and called by God. You see, the name David, and I grew up with this because my dad was David. My middle name's David. David means beloved, okay? That's why the series is called Beloved. Because there's something powerful in this idea that David, this deeply human, deeply flawed, incredible leader, incredible worship leader, David, his identity was beloved of God. And that comes through in all of the things that he does and all the mistakes that he makes God 
still calls him beloved. That's his true identity. And from the moment that oil touches his head, the Holy Spirit was with him in a way that was unique for the time. You see, we live in this dispensation now where because of the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ and Pentecost, we have this free access to the Holy Spirit. It is normal. We should be all striving to live a spirit-filled, spirit-led life. This was not the norm back in David's day. There were a few chosen people who had this power, this anointing of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't widespread over everyone. Now, yes, God was at work in a very real sense with all of his people, but there's something about going after that Holy Spirit experience where we're being led by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, called by the Spirit, and living and walking in step with the Holy Spirit. We get that access, the same access that David had here, that same anointing of the Holy Spirit is free to us. Remember, there's two things we need to remember about David. He had an incredible understanding of the presence of God, and he knew what to do when he messed up. It was repent, turn, and actually change your ways. Now, set a good bit of context here, and we get into the part of the story where the armies are coming to battle each other. Now, Saul basically has gone out. Now, remember, Saul is going out here, and he is no longer under that anointing. God has taken that away, and uh, we're very, it's very clear about that in the build-up to this. Saul goes out, and essentially, we've got one mountain here, one mountain here, a big valley in between, and the armies are f- literally facing off against each other. Uh, every day, the Philistines send out their, their big unit. He's not a big fella, he's a big unit. Okay? They send out the big unit, and out he goes, and he raises his fist and his sword, and he shouts, and he curses, and he defies the armies of God every day. And every day, their reaction is to be terrified, to car away, and to run away, including Saul. Saul is afraid and runs away every day. Now, this is a leader who these people have followed. And again, as we get later into this story, there's the whole phrase, David, you know, Saul's killed his thousands, David's killed his tens of thousands. Saul has been in battle many times. Saul has won many victories as the king of Israel. But he is walking into this battle. And instead of walking on that testimony, instead of walking in that victory, he is carrying away afraid. Then, let's let's put a few numbers in here and get a bit of context. So Goliath, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, he'll not be that tall, really. He couldn't be that tall. Because, you know, the people in biblical days, they were smaller, weren't they? You know, all the wee doorways used to be much smaller. If you, if you go around, you know, if, if, if you go around any historical sites, you know, all the wee doorways used to duck down, go down. The most, everybody must have been smaller. He just must be regular height. No, so he was six cubits and a span, which is nine foot nine inches tall. A nine foot nine inches. Like, he's a big unit. His armor, his chainmail armor was 5,000 shekels, which is about nine stone. I mean, that's the weight of some people in this room. He's ne- the thing he puts on is nine stone. Like this, he was an intimidating character, make no doubts about it. However, 
Yeah, I'll tell this. When, when I, it, this, this reminds me a little bit of when I was at the first rugby team I ever played for. When I was, I was in P6 and I was playing for the P67 rugby team in school. And we had, a, we had a big unit on the team. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was about three or four times as wide as everybody else. And our tactic for every team we played was to go down the pitch and just pop the ball to him. And he would take it and he would just trundle on. <laughs> with about four or five people lying off him and just go and set it over there. Did I do right? Yes, yes, you did. Good man, that's it. And that was the time. And we won everything. We won championships. We got to play. We got to, back at those st- that stage, you actually got, if you won that, you went to a competition at Ravenhill. And we would just pop the ball to him off. He would go, and we lived on his coattails because he was bigger. And str- That's what the Philistines are doing. They're living on his nine stone coattails. Okay? He's going out, roaring and shouting, Everybody's scared and the first times you're going, look at us, we're the men. And they're not really the men, okay? So that's, that's what's been going on. And then into that scene, where's David? Where's David when all of this is going on? David is off in the field looking after the sheep, vaguely aware that they've all gone out to battle. What happens here is David gets sent on a message. He gets sent as an errand boy. Now, this is the thing. This, is, this boggles my mind. There's, there's one of two things going on here. David gets sent on this message from looking after you. Either Jesse's gone, right? David's so insignificant. Even though he's been anointed king, just go back out and look after the sheep and quit annoying me. Or Jesse's gone, right, he's anointed. He needs to keep building character. Off you go, back to the field. Yeah, you're anointed. It's not your time yet. It's all still here. Either way, David, who's been anointed as the next king, is still looking after sheep in his dad's field. Off he goes. Then his dad says, David, come on, come on. I want you to go to the battle. David's excited. But no, it's here. Take some grain, take some cheese. Bring that to the commanders. And if you can, get a wee message from your brothers. Make sure they're doing all right. And that's where we pick up this story. This is 1 Samuel 17, verse 20. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper. He's still looking after the sheep. Took the provisions and went as Jesse commanded him. And then came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Now, I'll pause there a second. Remember, David is carrying that anointing as the next king. Holy Spirit has rushed upon him. And what happens in David is what should have happened in Saul. See, that anointing has come off Saul and Saul has run away and card and all the men have done the same. A righteous indignation comes over David and he goes, who is this Philistine to come against the armies of the Lord? You see, there's something in our society where we're so scared. We, this is the problem. We've followed Saul and the anointing's no longer on Saul. The things of the past are not the way to do this anymore. And if we keep following the leadership and the ideas and the broken ideologies of the past, what's going to happen is we're going to follow that and we're just going to car away and not do anything or say anything when the anointing is on the generation of David to stand up and say, no, 
We will not be pushed on this any further. We are the people of God and we hold the truth and we hold the gospel and we won't tolerate this in our land anymore. You see, there are giants in our land, people. Now, there are personal giants in our lives. You may have giants of addiction. You may have giants of financial difficulties. You may have giants of whatever it is that's going on in your life. Whatever the challenge is, you have personal giants. But we have giants in our land that we cannot, as the people of God, be scared to tackle anymore. Are we going to car away? Are we actually going to stand up and under that anointing, just like David said, no. You will not defy the truth, the armies of the living God anymore. You see, we look back here in this story and we see that, you know, the big lad came out, the big son, and, you know, Eliab, Samuel looks at him and goes, he looks the part. But here's Eliab in this story. He actually comes in here. This is verse 28. Now, Eliab, said, his oldest brother, heard what David had said and spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? There's history here. Was it not but a word? You can see Eliab's heart here. Eliab's sitting under Saul. He's cowering. He's terrified. He's coming away from the battle. And he can see that heart of a lion in David. But instead of acknowledging him as his brother and going, yes, you've got this. You're in the right place. He goes, no, you've got an evil heart. Brothers, eh? <laughs> Who's got a sibling? Yeah, siblings don't even speak that nicely to each other nowadays. So let's take stock here. David goes on an errand. And he's absolutely gobsmacked by what he finds. Very quickly, David's words get back to Saul. Now Saul doesn't know that David's been anointed to be the next king. That has, he doesn't know that. But David arrives in and Saul's expecting, well, there's big talk here. Must be a big lad. And David arrives and he's a wee fella. And Saul goes, basically you're too young what do you know? And David goes, it's not the years, it's the mileage. See, David has deep history with God. David has deep, deep history with God. David has testimony after testimony after testimony in his youth of how God has provided for victory after victory. Where? In the field. David goes, no, no, Saul. The bears have come, the lions have come to steal the sheep, and I've defended them. When the lion comes and lifts a lamb out of my field, I've gone after him, and I've taken him by the beard, and I've killed him. And Saul goes, whoa, whoa, okay. Right, okay, listen, do you know what? <laughs> Maybe because you're so annoying, I'm just going to let you go out there, that's fine. But what does Saul do? And this is where we have to be careful. Because we can actually come in the anointing of David and be right and have the right heart and come to the king, come to Saul and say, hey, we know how to defeat this enemy. And the wise leadership goes, here, do it this way. And what does Saul do? He gives him his armor. And David goes, I don't know, out of culture of honor or whatever it is, he goes, yeah, sure, I'll put that on. It's about three times the size of me, but that's okay. 
and he puts on his breastplate and takes the shield and the helmet. He can barely move in Saul's armor. Saul tries to get David to do it his way because ultimately Saul does say, yeah, okay, there's truth in what you're saying, there's something on what you're saying, but do it my way. Has Saul's way worked for the past while with Goliath? No, it hasn't. So David goes, thanks, but no thanks. Gives him back the armor. What does David do? And this is madness. It sounds utterly insane. He goes down to the little brook and he picks up five little pebbles and he puts them in his shepherd's bag and he takes his sling. Madness! Insanity! Off he goes, a wee fella in his tunic and his shepherd's gear off to fight the nine foot, nine inch big unit. You can only think what Goliath was going through at that stage, going, I've been taunting these lads for months. This has been great crack. Who are they going to send me? Must be their biggest fella. They've obviously been training them. And this wee weed steps out. He must have laughed his trunks off. The Philistines were going, ha, ha, you. David's not scared in the slightest. Goliath taunts him. But David, remember, David has a deep understanding of the presence of God. He is also empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is indignant at how this enemy has defiled the, peop- the people and the, the armies of Israel. This is 1 Samuel 17, 48. says this. When the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. Now, he's wearing armor here. He's got his big breastplate. He's got his legs covered. He's got his chain mail. He's got his helmet. But God guides the stone. See, here's the thing. God knows where the weak point of your giant is. God knows where the weak point of your giant is. Your giant's not invincible. No matter what your giant says, no matter what addiction has said to you, no matter what financial brokenness has said to you, no matter what relational breakup has said to you, your giant can be defeated. Not in your strength, but in the power and the strength of God. Our giants in this land can be defeated no matter what they say. We need to trust God with the bit that we have. See, David actually didn't realize it. Well, maybe he did. But he went into that battle over-prepared. He didn't need five stones. Brought five with him. He was he'd five times more than he needed. He just needed the one. That sling, that shot, God guides the stone. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines. See, if you want to slay giants, you've got to do it the way God has trained you. Now, I'm I'm not going for some like mad, crazy individualism here. Just be you. No, that's not what I'm saying. But God has had you in the wilderness in preparation and training to defeat the giants in your life and that you're called to defeat. Here's the thing, I can't defeat your giants for you. I cannot defeat your giants for you. 
you've got to actually start to have some righteous indignation and start to face off your giants. If you've been cowering away and scared of whatever it is, it is time to turn and face that giant. We have a moment here. I do believe we're in a season for bringing giants down. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. There's two type, there's two groups of people that I feel need to respond to this this morning. The prayer ministry team are going to be here to stand with these people. The first, the first group of people is this. People who have been, in, who are in a season of preparation. You have been ignored, ostracized, pushed to the side, forgotten about, but you're out in the field doing what God, the, the best that you can in front, you're building the wall in front of you. You're off. You feel like you're in obscurity. But I want you to see this morning that God has been training you and preparing you to slay giants. So if that's you this morning, when the prayer ministry team are here, I want you to come up. They're just going to stand with you, pray with you, and just encourage you because your season of preparation is coming to an end. It's time to face that giant. The second group of people are those people who you know you've been through that season of preparation. It is time to face that giant this morning. It's time to look it in the eye, and it's time to look it head on, tackle it, and defeat it. time to kill your giant it's not time to sit back anymore and go it's okay for that giant to taunt me it's okay for that giant to live in the land it's not it's time to face that giant and it's time to do it God's way take that stone and just in faith fling it and let God take the giant down but you've got to throw the stone could God have defeated Goliath without David of course he could but he prepared David he brought him through all of those things for that moment to defeat the giant. Now there's an awful lot more happens in David's life and we're going to pick like three more kind of keystone parts of David's life over the next few weeks. But this morning is about giant slaying and about standing up. Do you want to stand with me? God, I know that I don't know every situation in this room. I don't know what giants people are facing. But I know you do. So God, I say this morning, God, would you just give us that holy, righteous, Holy Spirit indignation this morning to stand up and be counted, to no longer let the Goliaths, to let the giants rule against us. God, would you give us the courage would you give us the strength of character, God? Would you give us that anointing to fight and tackle and defeat that giant in our own lives this morning? God, as a corporate body, as the church in Northern Ireland, would you also give us the courage to stand up to the giants in this land and say no more? Enough is enough. You will not defy the armies of the living God in our land anymore. You will not get to influence our children. You will not get to steal the next generation. You will not get to poison the harvest that is ripe in the kingdom. God, would you give us the courage, the anointing, the faith to stand against the giants in our land. In Jesus' name, amen.